welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. I always think it's a bit worrying when people talk about special relationships with the Americans. That's just maybe me, but actually, on this day we do. We are going to talk about this. And um, Jason has been a friend, first of all, to Dave and to our community for a number of years. And he has walked alongside us and he has shown his wisdom and his love and his grace to us. And we as a leadership team are so thankful for you. And... As a community, we are thankful to South Bend, who are incredibly generous and have been generous to us, as you well know, um, with money and with time and with support and love. And just before he comes and speaks, I want us to honour him. And can we give him a round of applause? This is a a beautiful man of God with an incredible heart, and I commend him to you. I commend his book to you, and we're looking forward to what you have to bring. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, It's really good to be with you all again. To me, coming to Redeemer always feels a a bit like a pilgrimage, and what I mean by that simply is um, to go someplace far away to be inspired and to meet God in a peculiar way. And that always seems to happen for me here, and so it's, it's really an honor. I, I get the joy this time for the first time I'm bringing friends here. My friend Brandon and Jake are on the road with me, and they've both heard a lot about Redeemer, but it's fun to actually uh, finally get to share it with them as well. So today is very, very um, privileged and meaningful for me, so thank you for having me. <clears throat> uh, I wanted to uh, start with a story that I learned from another teacher years ago, and this comes from a rabbinical tradition where centuries ago, a rabbi would teach his students, and he would often turn to scriptures, and then he would say to the students, put these words from the scripture on your heart. And at some point, one of the students raised their hand and asked the teacher, like, what do you mean put the words on our hearts? Don't you mean put the words in our hearts? And the teacher said, no, only God can put the words in your heart. And so for now, we set the words on our hearts, hoping that when our hearts break, they fall in. And today I wanted to turn to some of the words of Scripture that in my own life have fallen into my heart when my heart has broken. And I want to share them with you not only because of what they've done in me and and through me, but also um, because of the the season that we've been living in as a world in the last few years. And what I mean by that is while I think every season of human life brings with it some losses, um, whether those losses are the loss of somebody you actually love or the loss of a relationship or the loss of a job, or the loss of an arrangement. I think the last few years have brought with them extraordinary loss. And one reason I say that is that whether it's the pandemic that we've all lived through or some other things, um, anytime change accelerates, loss accelerates. Because change and loss are intrinsic to one another. Things don't change without losing some things. And we've seen a lot of change in the last few years, and so with that comes uh, some heavy loss. So that's why I want to share this with you, not just because of what it's meant to me, uh, but in case these words might not simply land on your heart, but if your heart's broken open a little bit today, they might, they might fall in too. Uh, the words that I'm talking about come from uh, the opening of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. This is uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. This is his sort of 
a big expanse of teaching on the life that God wants to live in and through us that he calls the kingdom of God. But before he gets into that big, beautiful vision of life where we forgive our enemies and stop exploiting one another and live without worry, before he gets into all of that, he gives these strange blessings in Matthew 5 that we call the Beatitudes. And maybe you're familiar with these or maybe you're not. But the one that I want to turn to is the second blessing or beatitude that he gives. It's here. It's Matthew 5, verse 4, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't. But I want to kind of poke around on that. And I want to explore both the wisdom of it and the strangeness of it and what it might say to us today. Uh, First, let's talk about the wisdom of it. Um, If Jesus uh, is a good Jewish man in the first century, as I, I think he is, Uh, He's surely deeply steeped in the Psalms. This is the prayer book of his people. And when I say prayer book, I don't just mean that these are the prayers that they prayed. I mean that these prayers became a sort of landscape of spirit and emotion for them, a way of sort of intuitively relating to their own experience as human beings. Like this is the map that they have learned their entire life about what it is to have a soul and what it is to live with God in the actual world. And on that terrain or on that map, uh, if you pay attention, you'll notice a few things. So first of all, in the Psalms, I'm not saying that Jesus would have had this kind of quantitative analysis, but in the Psalms, there's basically three kinds of prayers or Psalms that Jesus and all of his people were taught to pray for all those centuries. Three big categories, and this comes mostly from a scholar about 100 years ago named Gunkel in Germany. And Gunkel says, uh, the first category of prayer, the first sort of movement, the first sort of terrain that you find in the Psalms is simply praise. These are the prayers in the Psalms that say, like, God, you're great. And you're probably familiar with these kinds of prayers. Maybe you've prayed these kinds of prayers. Or if you haven't prayed prayers like, God, you're great, and maybe prayer is not even a word that works for you or that you relate to, surely you've had those days when everything just fits together quite right. Where the world around you and the world within you, it all kind of flows, it all kind of works. You know your place in the world. You know where up is and down is and left is and right is. You kind of find your orientation and all of those things. And some of us find that in those moments we're drawn toward explicit praise, like, God, you're great. We connect all of that. Others don't, but we all know the experience there. And the Psalms have lots of prayers that come from that experience of everything sort of holding together quite nicely. Well, then there's uh, Psalms of Thanksgiving. And Psalms of Thanksgiving sound a lot like Psalms of Praise because they often begin the same. They begin with something like, God, you're great. But the difference between Psalms of Praise and Psalms of Thanksgiving is the Psalms of Thanksgiving speak after everything has fallen apart and then has been put back together, right? So they begin with, God, you're great, but then they'll say, you know, a minute ago things were not all right. Like the the earth was quaking beneath my feet. I didn't know where I was or what was up or what was down. But after this tumult, after this despair, after this loss, after this disorientation, now I find myself on solid ground again. You've done something to bring me out of that and into a, a good new place. That's where Psalms of Thanksgiving come from. Like, God, you're great because of what you've done, so thank you. And then there's the third kind of Psalms. These are Psalms of lament. These are psalms that bleed, they mourn, they protest, they cry out, they accuse God, they, they name losses, they beg God to deliver. And the first interesting thing about observing those three categories of psalms, these three kinds of prayers that Jesus would have been trained up in his entire life, is that if you quantify all the psalms that are psalms of praise, you kind of add them up, and then you quantify all the psalms that are psalms of thanksgiving, you kind of add them up, and then you take all the psalms that are psalms of lament and add them up, it's interesting that the largest category by far is lament. Jesus, in his his kind of spiritual training in these prayers, would have learned that the kind of prayer that that wisdom book traffics in the most is the kind of prayer that you pray when everything falls apart. 
when you lose things, when you are racked by doubt, when you are plagued by difficulty, that's the most common kind of prayer in those psalms. Let me give you a little taste of these psalms just so you can kind of get the, the texture of what these prayers sound like. I'll give you a few here. In Psalm 44, the psalmist speaks to God and says, you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Or Psalm 60, you've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for it is quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. Or Psalm 74, we are given no signs from God. You notice here they, they've even stopped speaking to God. Now they're just speaking about God. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. Now before we go any further into this, I just want to observe that that kind of praying, it's hard to imagine it working in most of our like regular everyday community, right? <laughs> like, uh, like we just um, prayed before the service back there and we were standing in a circle and I was just imagining if one of us in that prayer circle had opened our mouth and just said, Lord, you have made us a haunt for jackals. I just kind of wonder what the reaction would be in the room, right? Um, hopefully we would be compassionate toward it, but it wouldn't fit into our normal sort of pattern of praying together, right? Imagine going out to lunch after the service and maybe you decide to bless the lunch and you lead out with that. It's not going to go very well, right? Which points out the fact that these prayers that are most frequently expressed in Scripture are often the least welcome in the kind of spiritual community that we build, whether it's church or family or your friend group. We're just, we're not that comfortable with raw, naked lament, right? Well, there's something else that you'll observe if you look at these um, prayers of lament. And this part troubled me at first. So you, you can read all the Psalms of lament and you can look for some patterns, some kind of genre trends in the text about how these prayers go. And what you'll notice is they almost always follow a really simple two-part pattern. All these psalms of lament, they basically do the same thing. First, they name the lament. They say things like we've just heard, like everything's broken, everything's messed up, everything has been lost. God, you've failed us. God, where are you? That's the lament part of the psalm. And then, after the lament, they turn to praise. That big sort of open-hearted, like, honoring of God, the same psalms that begin in lament, they always end in praise. So, for example, maybe you've heard of Psalm 22. This is the psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the prayer that Jesus prays on the cross at the moment of his crucifixion. Well, that same psalm, just a little while later, it says, I will declare your name in the great assembly. Like, from you comes the theme of my praise. The same psalm that begins in lament ends in praise. And when I first read this, I didn't like it. Because I don't know about you, but like I've grown up in spiritual communities where what I think began well-intended as a, a movement toward honoring God even in difficulty, which I think is beautiful and sacred, what began well-intended became this kind of like toxic, sentimental, fake, uh, like greeting card spirituality where like you, you kind of pretend to deal honestly with what's happening, and then you quickly move on from it. And then our faith and our spirit become a way of like bypassing our reality rather than facing our reality. And that's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. And the other thing that sucks about it is that if somebody does that to you, like say you, you walk in here on a Sunday morning and you're really going through it, and the most honest prayer from your life that day is something like, God, you've made us a haunt for jackals, or you have torn my family open, or the land beneath my feet is quaking, and I can't find you anywhere. If that's the honest prayer, and somebody hoping to try to help you in the best possible sense does the worst possible thing and says something to you that trivializes it, right? 
And they're trying to do the right thing, but it's really the wrong thing. And it, and it just exacerbates the feeling that you have, that you have been shattered by loss, and now you're alone in it because they don't seem capable of sitting with you in it. Ever been there? I've been there. And because I've been there, I didn't like this feature in these psalms. However, one thing that's helpful to remember in spiritual texts is that they often express in microcosm something that actually takes much longer in your life. So just because you open the text and you can see within one page, within a couple of stanzas, that the poet goes from lament to praise, that may not mean that you and I are meant to be able to go quite so quickly from lament to praise. Rather, it might raise some questions for us about whether there's some kind of connection between our willingness to bravely mourn the things that we have lost and, and the capacity that we will find ourselves led back into for wonder or praise. And that's a question I've been wrestling with for a number of years, and it's gotten more urgent for me uh, in the last uh, three years in particular with an experience of mine. So let me tell you about that. Uh, I want to tell you about my friend Alex. So Alex and I uh, went to college together, and uh, we quickly became close friends. I found in Alex a friend who was, like, unfailingly kind and effortlessly cool. You know the type, right? Kind of the Dave Armstrong type, if you will. Um, uh, we became dear friends, and then after college, I bought this shabby old house in South Bend, Indiana, three bedrooms, and I got seven of my friends to move in with me, and we just sort of made a, a life together there for a bit. Uh, Alex and I, living in that house together, we would have the kind of conversations you have when you're in your early 20s, and you're working everything out, right? So we would sit on the roof of my house, and we would smoke really awful convenience store cigars, you know, and we would just kind of like look out over the neighborhood and have these conversations. There was one Irish pub in all South Bend that we would go to, and that's probably the main reason I love coming to Belfast now. And we would go there uh, to this place called Fiddler's Hearth, proper Irish pub, and drink our pints of Guinness, where uh, he and I had gone to this very, very conservative Christian college that had rules about that sort of thing. And so in our like middle, late 20s, we had to kind of make up for all that lost beer consumption. And so we'd go to Fiddler's, and, and we just have all these kind of deep and interesting conversations that you have when you're still a little bit of a teenager in your spirit, but you're growing up into an adulthood that you still don't understand, and you're kind of talking about it, you know? Um, so Alex and I grew really close during those years, but I also sensed in him a kind of restlessness. He was working a construction job, which was great, but he had different energies that he wanted to channel into the world. And so I watched him kind of searching the world, trying to figure out where he would channel that. And then one day he found it. And I come home to the house, and he's waiting for me. And he takes me up to his room where he shows me on his computer screen. He's found this fledgling nonprofit whose mission is to raise awareness and activism on behalf of the child soldiers who are being exploited by Joseph Kony's war in Central Africa. And he just got lit up by this mission. And so sure enough, like not long after this, he packs his bags and he moves out to California, out there in San Diego to join them. Now, uh, Alex's job with this organization ended up being an artist outreach, and they were really effective at this. And so they would find like music, like rock stars to promote their message, and Alex was the outreach person that helped them connect that. So pretty soon, I'm getting dispatches from like backstage green rooms and tour buses with my favorite rock stars. And it just seems like everybody fell in love with that same kind of effortless, cool, and unfailing kindness that my friend Alex had, you know? Uh, one day while he's out there traveling, I get this package in the mail, I'm not expecting it, and I open it, and it's a, a book by Aristotle the philosopher, and it's called Nicomachean Ethics, which doesn't matter at all. Uh, but in the book, this philosopher discusses friendship, and he says there's basically three kinds of friendship. And there's a couple of kinds of friendship that are inferior, they're not really great friendship, but then, then, then he says there's the friendship of the good, 
or the friendship of virtue, where you see the virtue in your friend and they see the virtue. There's something good that they admire or love in you, and there's something good that you admire and love in them, and you're rooting for that. You're calling that out of one another. You live to see that virtue expressed in the world through them. And all he had done was like drawn a bracket around the paragraph with an asterisk, which is just like a typically cool way for Alex to do something really kind, right? So we stay in touch like through, through flights to visit each other and phone calls over the years. And, and then one day he falls in love with Beth, the woman he would marry. And Beth lives in Nashville, Tennessee. So Alex moves there. And then randomly he starts asking me, hey, are you going to be in Nashville on these dates? I'm like, I, no, I wasn't planning on it. Why do you ask? And that was his kind of strange way of asking me if I would perform the wedding for him and Beth. So not long after that, I find myself on this gorgeous Tennessee afternoon under this massive old tree with the privilege of watching Alex and Beth make their vows to one another. A few months later, I get a text message from Alex. It says, hola, amigo. Thought you would like to see the newest mini-member of our family. And then he sends me a picture of the ultrasound of their first child that's on the way. So I call him and we celebrate over the phone. And after all that adventuring that Alex had done, I could just feel the joy that he found in digging some roots and building a family. And all of that joy made the next phone call um, even more confusing for me. I got a text message um, not long after that from another friend, and he said, hey, do you have a minute? And I call him, and he says, are you alone? I say, yeah. Uh, And then he tells me that Alex had died by suicide. Yeah. Um... And I don't know if you've ever gotten news like that, but like I remember exactly where I am. I'm in my car at the intersection of Grape and Edison, and I, it's almost like the words leave the, the phone speaker and like bounce off my skull, like they can't get in, because I don't have any recognition in me. I don't have any room for this, this utterly absurd news, right? You know, it just was completely, utterly, totally incompatible with my experience and my friend, which I know so tragically can be how things like mental illness and suicide go, right? But in that moment, I just was completely lost in it. Uh, Later that week, just a day later, I had to travel to New York City for work. And uh, while I'm walking the streets of lower Manhattan, I just remember like the numbness wore off out of nowhere. And once the numbness wore off, there was just like this nauseous like wave of grief that like physically took over. kind of awkwardly excuse myself from my friends and go back to the hotel room where this, you know, this sadness just um, completely consumes, you know. I remember my brother calling me, and he was asking how I'm doing, which is an absurd question in that moment, right? And I remember telling him, I, um, I just didn't know it was possible to hurt this much, you know. Um, A week later, Alex's wife, Beth, asked me if I would um, come to Nashville to speak at Alex's funeral and deliver a eulogy. Of course, I would, you know, say yes to that. And so I drive down to Nashville, and I remember the night before the funeral, I'm there in the couch of a friend's house where I'm going to be sleeping for the night, and I have this yellow legal pad to write on, and it's just blank, you know. And I'm trying to figure out what on earth I'm going to say in the morning. Um, I knew it was going to be a very large gathering that people were coming in from all over the world for this funeral. I knew that none of us really knew each other. It's this kind of strange congregation that comes together for one day. I wanted to, um, I wanted to honor Alex, and I wanted to honor Beth, his wife, and I wanted to honor his parents and his brothers, 
And I, um, in that moment, at first, I could feel these instincts trying to kick in. So I've been preaching for like 20 years, and you develop like muscle memory. And like the preaching instinct often has a lot to do with like explanation, right? Like, let me see if I can explain some things for you. You know, like it feels good to give people an epiphany, right? But there are no explanations or epiphanies in that moment, right? And in fact, I think that the attempt to create one would have been so wildly inappropriate. And so I could feel these instincts trying to kick in, but I also like could sense they wouldn't be right. So then I'm even more lost. And I remember praying that night with a kind of desperation that I had not prayed with in a very long time. I think the kind of feeble prayer was like, God, I just want to do a good job. Um, and after wrestling through it and after praying for a bit um, and after like grieving even harder that night, I found a different kind of clarity that emerged for me, which was um, very basic. It was just this. It's like, Jay, your job isn't to explain anything or to fix anything or to cover anything or to heal anything. Your only job is to give witness to what has been lost here. That's it. That's the basic task of mourning. It's not explaining, it's not spinning, it's not fixing, it's not healing. The basic task of mourning is simply to give witness to what was lost. And so I, I said, I'm just going to give witness to my friend Alex. Sorry. Um, all right. So the next morning, um, I walk into this big old church in Tennessee, and I have Beth, Alex's widow, on my arm. She's very pregnant at that point. Um, carrying their baby boy, and I actually have their dog, Coloco was her name. She's a German shepherd whom Alex loved more than he had loved, like, anyone. And Coloco was a real guardian for Beth in that moment, so she was there to kind of keep vigil. So we walked down the aisle together, and we sit in the front row, and then the time comes for me to stand up and to speak. And I remember getting up and turning around and looking at this massive church full of people, and I remember being so struck. Um, every pastor I know has spoken in hard situations, that kind of goes with the job, right? I've never seen a, a room with that much pain in it, you know. Um, but I just tried to, like, steal myself into what I believed in that moment, which is I'm just here to give witness. And so I told them about how Alex and I became friends in college. I told them about that shabby old house, and I told them about our rooftop cigars and our nights at that pub where we were working about all of our angst. I told them about how um, I had this 90-pound golden retriever uh, when we were living together, this big old pile of, like, love and hair, you know. And I told them about this peculiar relationship that Alex had with my dog, or rather, that my dog had with Alex. And what I mean by that is it didn't matter who was in the room or how many people were in the room or if I was there or not. If Jack, my dog, walked into a room where Alex was, or if Alex walked into a room where Jack, my dog, was, it didn't matter who else was there, Jack would always single Alex out, only Alex, for this particularly inappropriate display of canine dominance and affection. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying my dog would hump Alex, only Alex, always Alex, no matter where he was. I think even my dog had a crush on Alex, you know? I told him about how he had found that passion for that work with that organization. I told them how he had fallen in love with Beth and what it was like to watch Alex becoming a loving father to the child that she was carrying. And together we just told Alex that we missed him like hell and that we loved him. Uh, a couple weeks later, the, the remembering of Alex would continue out in San Diego, California. Uh, the organization that he had worked with still had a lot of roots there and a lot of his people were still out there and they wanted to do something to honor Alex's life. But I wasn't going to go. I didn't know a lot of those people. 
Um, also, the week between the Nashville funeral for Alex and the California stuff for Alex, we were actually uh, on the shores of Lake Erie in Michigan, or uh, in Ohio, scattering the ashes of my own grandfather who had died. And with just all of that going on, I just didn't feel like I had the bandwidth for it. But can I confess something else to you all? The thought of flying to San Diego, it just felt inefficient. Do you know what I mean? Like, grief isn't neat and tidy and efficient. And I think we have been so trained up in the modern world to try to be efficient, right? It's like, why would you spend even more time turning to this grief, even more money? I didn't even have the money for the flights. Like, there was just this, like, sort of um, mechanical part of me that looked at it from a distance and thought, that doesn't make any sense. And so I wasn't going to go. But then one of the people who was organizing the events in California asked if I would come and say a few words. And so I booked my flights and I go out there. And then when I'm there, we do this thing I've never done before. Now, I know you, I think you all have a little bit of surfing on the coast around here, yeah? Uh, there's a lot of surfing in California, of course. And Alex had become a, a, an avid surfer when he lived there. And so one of the main rituals that they wanted to enact while we were together was a paddle out, which is a kind of a grieving ritual among surfers. So there was this day there in La Jolla, California, where we all grabbed surfboards, dozens of us. We paddled out on the ocean there. We found ourselves sort of clustered together in this like improvised flotilla on the water. Uh, we sang songs and we told stories about Alex. And then we fanned out into this ring on the water. And then bizarrely, at this point, Beth, who was very pregnant, made it not just to California, but onto the water on a kayak. And she was wearing a, a Hawaiian lei uh, in Alex's honor. And so she took the lei and she threw it into the middle of the ring. And we dug our hands into the ocean and we splashed toward it in this act of love and honor. And I remember in that exact moment, just having this kind of like peripheral awareness, this, like this little hint in my spirit, that something about all of that was gonna help us heal just a little bit. That, that somehow like this, this act, this ritual of mourning was itself beginning to create the possibility of, of healing for us. I just didn't really have any idea of how or what that would look like, right? And then we come to the part of the story that's like really, really hard for me to tell because it's the part of the story where I feel like the impact on me was the most dramatic, but I feel like it translates the least well in the telling. And so I'm afraid it might sound kind of trivial. I'm afraid like it's, I don't know how to convey to you the importance of what happened in this moment, but I'm just gonna have to trust you all with it, um, that you'll be able to hold this with me. But what happened is that night there in La Jolla, um, the best way I can describe it is that the sky was set on fire. I've seen plenty of beautiful sunsets in my life. This was like something categorically different. I remember um, standing there on the shore and it was like there was electricity traveling like from the sunset into my body, you know? I found myself shouting and weeping because it felt like if I didn't, I would explode. Um, and the weeping wasn't a weeping of sadness in that moment. It was more like the sheer quantity of presence that I was feeling was like more than I could handle or contain in that moment. It almost felt like a little secret in the universe had been cracked open and revealed for that moment. 
And when I think about that moment and the beauty that I saw in the sky, beauty is not quite the right word for it. The better word that I have for it is glory. And when I think about that shouting and weeping that came out of me in that moment, the best word I have for that, that feeling for me was praise. And this brings us back to those psalms and those patterns of lament and praise, right? So let me try to give you a little bit of my best understanding of what's going on with all of this uh, before we kind of wrap this up. Um, when you read the Psalms, you discover that these ancient writers had a very different relationship to the world around them than you and I do. And I don't mean to call you out individually. You might have a, your own relationship with the world, but I mean collectively in the world today. And what I, what I mean by that is that for a couple of hundred years now, we've had a very kind of material and mechanical relationship with the world around us, and we tend to kind of see things merely for what you can taste or touch or smell or see or hear for their kind of material and kind of physical content, right? But for a very, very, very long time, and especially in the ancient days when these writers wrote, they had a different way of seeing the world around them. You might call it what theologians describe as a sacramental imagination. Now, let me give you a few little tastes from the Psalms here. Uh, next slide. So they say things like the heavens declare the glory of God. And they don't mean like some like mystical vision in your head of heaven, they mean the skies above you, they mean the clouds above you, that the glory of God, that divinity is somehow on display. They say you've made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them, you and me and the people around us and the people you've lost, vessels of divine glory and honor, right? And then this, the psalmist in 42 says, deep calls to deep. And it's like what I hear in that is like that there's, a, there's a depth in you that senses the depth around you. There's a deep place in you that knows that there's more in the people around you than just their bodies or just their stories. There's something, there's something somehow of God given to, imparted to everything around us. And what I think that means then is that it's like when you lose someone you love, you've not just bumped into the inconvenient loss of a psychological attachment, even though I think that's probably happening too. When you lose someone you love, I think that the deep in you is mourning the, the glory, the depth, the, the peace of God that God had somehow endowed to that person in the world. There's, that's the kind of crying out that I think you feel, right? Which would mean that like by turning toward mourning rather than denying it or ignoring it or being too busy for it or pretending it's not there or using substances to cover it up or Netflix to distract yourself from it, but by turning toward it, it's almost like you're reinforcing your own relationship with this capacity within you to sense the glory around you because the same place within you that knows the loss also knows the glory. And then here's one other move, and I don't have time to like make my big case for it. But my other understanding of this is that if what you have lost was good, if it was beautiful, if it was true, if it was of God, then I don't think it's been destroyed. It might have simply been transformed. If what you've lost was good, if it was beautiful, if it was true, if it was of God, which if it's good or it's true or it's beautiful, you better bet it's of God. I don't think it's been destroyed. I think it's only been transformed. And maybe in some strange way, even while we grapple with the loss of these lives and loved ones and relationships and dreams, maybe there's a knowing within that says that even while they've been lost, nothing is lost. And maybe they aren't even lost in the end. 
And I know we're kind of wading into some strange metaphysical waters here. Uh, I know this might feel a little bit strange. I have news for you. The Beatitudes are strange. Most of what Jesus says is strange, and I used to uh, struggle with that. And now I've come to believe that if it's not strange, it's too small for the mystery of God and the mystery of life that we are experiencing in the here and now, right? Um, And so this is wisdom for all of us who have lost anything, I think. Not to wallow in the grief, not to grind an ax out of the loss, but to turn toward the vulnerability of that loss and to enact it through ritual. Maybe you need to write a letter to what you lost. Or maybe you need to build a monument. Or maybe you need to have a ceremony or a ritual or sing a song. Or maybe you need to go up on the mountain or out on the water and do something to to give witness to what you've lost. And I don't know what will happen next. I'm not promising that like five minutes later you're going to get some big, beautiful sunset, right? Of course not. Who knows? But I do think that in turning toward the loss for a moment, you are perhaps planting the seeds. You're creating the moment of possibility that later you will find an expanded capacity for praise. Not because you... Just grind out that praise when you don't believe it. But I mean that you will, you will attain for yourself. You will discover again. You will lay hold of the idea that maybe if it was good or beautiful or true, it hasn't been lost. It's only been transformed. And even while my brain doesn't entirely understand that, I think my soul knows that. And for the reasons I've already told you and for others, I've, I've come to believe in my bones that my friend Alex is held and healed in the love of God. And I've come to believe that we are held and healed by that same love when we bravely mourn the things that we have lost. Now, um, another reason I believe all of this is because at the center of the Christian story, and what many of us here would probably describe as at the center of history, was perhaps one of the most heightened experiences humanity has ever known of, of loss and lament and glory and praise. And what I'm speaking of is the experience of those around Jesus in his own death and resurrection. During the three years of Jesus' time with his friends, you can sense that the deep in them is sensing the depth in him. That the soul in them is coming to somehow sense the glory in him, right? Which adds even more profound weight and terror to his loss, to his death. And you can just kind of sense the, the darkness that swirls around them. The text even speaks of it when they lose their friend Jesus. Only to discover three days later that because he was good and true and beautiful, and because he was of God, he was never lost. He was only transformed into the resurrected body that they encountered. And so today, you and I have the privilege of coming um, to the sacred meal that we call communion or Eucharist. And I'll invite the band back up, and we can turn toward that now. And I hope, however it is that you come to this table today, to this sacred meal, I hope you remember that you're not alone if you feel that you have lost something sublimely good. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a dream. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the loss of a certain kind of faith, where in an earlier season of life, you felt that you held a version of faith that was beautiful and good, but it just kind of slipped through your fingers and you can't find your way back to it anymore. You don't know where it went. That, too, is its own loss. But if you've lost something good and beautiful and true, you're not alone. And I also hope you you trust that maybe through mourning bravely, through enacting that loss in some form of witness, that you might be laying the groundwork that later your soul will know that it's only been transformed. Um, 
Uh, I know that here at Redeemer, the table is open to anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus, which I think is really beautiful. That's how we like to do that in South Bend, too. Uh, so in a minute, I'll pray, um, and then you'll be free uh, to be at the table with those who are going to serve you. Uh, I know that it's gluten-free bread, so hopefully that makes you feel very welcome. And the cup is uh, just juice, not alcohol, so hopefully that'll help all feel welcome there. Um, but I'll pray, and then when I'm done praying, those who are going to serve you can serve you at the table while uh, Dave and the team lead us. Uh, let's pray. Loving God, uh, we bring to you today um, both our hope and our losses. A hope that perhaps you'll meet us at the table today and remind us that we are not alone in all that we have lost. I pray that there would be some comfort at the table for us today like you have promised. And I pray that you would train us up to be the people who mourn bravely the things that we have lost that we may find our way again to a capacity for praise, that we might know the glory again, um, even in the here and now, even while we wait for the restoration of all things. We pray today that the table uh, would bring for us a meal that is your body given for us and for the world, and that we would know your love there too. I pray these things in Christ's name. And we all say amen. And now, as you'd like, uh, you're free to come forward to the table. Blessed are the hurts that 